welcome to the Digiday Podcast. I'm Kaylee Barber, media editor at Digiday. And I'm Kamiko McCoy, senior marketing reporter here at Digiday. Good morning to you, Kamiko. How are you feeling? Have you had your breakfast? Are you on your second cup of coffee yet? How are you feeling? I'm feeling all right. And great question. I am actually a breakfast truther. (laughs) I do not believe I have to eat breakfast every day. Um, So I am indeed on my second cup of coffee. Okay. So you don't eat breakfast. Fascinating. No, no. The pancakes and waffles and eggs and things like this, I can only eat it so much before I'm like, and then the breakfast for dinner people, no. Really? Oh my God. I love a good B4D. That's not, that's not a thing. Breakfast for dinner. I love a good breakfast for dinner. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, but okay. I also was like you for, I'd say a good chunk of my life after like, like heading into college and then um, my early adult years, like when I didn't have my mom barking down my neck to eat like breakfast or whatever, Mm -hmm. I never, I never did. But recently I've found that like, I am so groggy in the morning if I don't put some degree of protein in my body. So I've been trying to do more like eggs or like, um, like, I don't know, at least toast or something, though I find myself hungry like an hour later. So maybe it's not the best thing for me. I don't know. I'll do oatmeal every once in a while. And that is exactly how I feel after like 30 minutes. I'm like, did I eat anything at all? Yeah, very true. All right. So your guest this week um, is actually the co-founder of a cereal brand. So very fitting for this conversation. Uh, Gabby Lewis, uh, he co-founded Magic Spoon, which is a DTC company, DTC cereal. That is a very interesting concept to me. Um, Did he talk about why operating as like a DTC company made sense for a startup cereal company? It, It just seems like a very interesting kind of like launch path. Yeah, um, we flicked at it briefly, and the sense that I got was kind of like that's where growth was happening at the time that that the company launched. Keep in mind when when Magic Spoon launched, it's kind of along the same era of like other millennial darling brands like your Rothy's or your Bomba, um, Casper mattresses, and things like this, where so much growth was happening online. Um, and actually, when I had the conversation with him, um, he kind of said that that has been a strong point for them is like they know how to do measurement and um, digital investment just because they've got that backing and that understanding and laid that groundwork from how they started. So it's kind of been like a a gain in their their strategy overall. Got it. And then I guess how has the, I don't know, return of retail or like the expansion kind of led to like IRL Mm. strategy as well? Because I feel like a decent amount of DTC brands have made relationships with retailers, like big box stores and things like that yeah. to amplify their brand further. But yeah, did he talk about that strategy at all? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So now that they, they've they expanded their their footprint um, beyond just online to selling, beyond direct-to-consumer to selling um, in stores like Target and Costco. The Costco one I find funny because you get no less than a thousand ounce box when you go yeah. to Costco or there's like five boxes that you buy simultaneously. Um, but what's interesting there is now that they have, ex- now that they've expanded their retail footprint, they've also expanded kind of how they go about advertising. So we've moved beyond just like your direct response ads into more in-store ads, those in-posts and things like that to kind of capture people's attention while they're in the store. So 
they, like other retailers, are now trying to figure out, like, how do we measure um, our advertising and our return on ad spend and our, you know, our media investments um, now that we've got this Rolodex. I'm aging myself here. The Rolodex <laughs> of places that we're advertising and investing in media. Got it. All right. Well, I'll let you guys get into it. Very interested to hear how they've taken a DTC brand to retail and are, I don't know, thinking about the marketing strategy behind that. Let's do it. Hi, Gabby, and welcome to the Ditch Day podcast. So glad to have you. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Absolutely. Absolutely. How's your New Year treating you so far? We are finally in the year of 2024, our Lord and Savior. We are. So far, so good. I'm in New York right now, and it is freezing cold. But other than that, I'm doing fantastic. Thank you for asking. I'm down in Atlanta, and it's about the same. Glad we're all suffering through this together. (laughs) I typically like to start these conversations off um, with a fun question. So I'm going to ask you to unlock some childhood memories here for me and talk to me about what was your go-to breakfast as a kid? Oh, it was definitely a chocolatey cereal. I grew up in Scotland, and so over there it was Cocoa Pops. That I actually wouldn't say it was my go-to because my parents didn't let me have it very often, but it was definitely <laughs> my favorite. My go-to was probably something like whole wheat toast with peanut butter that my mom thought was uh, a healthy option and that I suffered through and didn't enjoy one moment of consuming. Yeah, hence the production of Magic Spoon. <laughs> <laughs> And then actually a follow-up question, and this is more of a debate thing here. Um, Do you count cereal as a strictly breakfast item or is it an anytime meal? Definitely an anytime meal. Well, for me, I'd say it's an anytime snack rather than an anytime meal. (laughs) But I would say any, anytime of day is appropriate. When we talk to our customers about cereal, you know, they, they confirm that they do consume it really all times of day. And surprising number of people have it late at night for lunch mm-hmm. when they're rushed, things like that. And I actually, I have it most often as an afternoon snack, personally. Yeah, for me, one bowl snack, two bowls a meal. There you go, there you go. I, when you said you wanted to debate something, I thought you were going to ask me, like, is cereal a soup, which we often get asked <laughs> on social media? Or do you pour the milk first or the cereal first, which everybody's got a strong opinion about. Oh, man, that's a controversial one. My sisters um, put ice in their milk in their cereal to make it cold, as if the refrigerator wasn't doing its job. It's very odd behavior. We, we've seen it all at this point. You know, <laughs> not, nothing surprises me. I'd actually say, because people are so passionate about it, we, we actually once filmed an ad where accidentally the person pulled their cereal box out of the fridge along with the milk. It was just a weird setup for an ad we didn't do on purpose. The amount of comments (laughs) that that ad got and the engagement on the social media made that ad one of our best performing ads of all time. Oh, man. So obviously there's a lot of discussion that happens around that. (laughs) Um, Let's dive straight into the business talk. I'm sure folks are are waiting to get to the juicy scoop. Um, Notably, I think one of the most interesting things and why I was so excited to talk to Magic Spoon is because you guys are a millennial direct-to-consumer brand darling um, that kind of came with that that generation. You know, the spots were iconic on the, on the railways and things like that. Um, but you guys have gone from an online only uh, to wholesale. So talk to me a little bit about why going big in brick-and-mortar stores, uh, you know, matters for you guys right now. 
Yeah, of course. Well, just to zoom out quickly and give the context. So we obviously make high-protein, low-carb breakfast cereal that looks and tastes like your childhood favorites. And we, we launched, as you said, entirely online in 2019. The first two and a half years of our business were purely direct-to-consumer. Year three, we launched on Amazon. And then about 18 months ago, we launched in retail for the first time. It was actually never our intention to launch a direct-to-consumer company. It was our intention to launch a healthy cereal company. We launched it online at first because that was what we knew. That was what our experience was in prior to this business. And it got such traction and had such product market fit. And we were able to scale it so quickly online that we just stayed focused. It was working, so we continued doing it. And we didn't want to distract ourselves with any other sales channel. And so it was actually sort of an accident that we were a direct-to-consumer company only for the first few years. And throughout that time, we were getting constant messages from customers saying, hey, I want to try your cereal. It resonates with me. But I don't want to buy four boxes at a time. And I don't want to buy it on the internet. I want to buy it during my weekly grocery shop. And we were also getting constant messages from retailers saying, we want to bring you in. There are all these copycats coming, and we're bringing them in. We want the original high-protein, low-sugar cereal. When can we finally bring you in? So at a certain point, we realized that we had to meet the consumer where they were and be everywhere the cereal is bought and sold. And so we started on that journey about 18 months ago. We launched Nationwide and Target to begin with. And now we're in about 12,000 stores. It includes Walmart, Kroger, Sprouts, Costco, as of a couple of weeks ago, Target, and a bunch of others as well. Yeah. So at Costco, you'll be buying four boxes anyways. (laughs) (laughs) What one very big box. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Exactly. Um, I'm curious kind of what that means, because I would imagine that that changes how you guys go about your marketing, both in terms of goals and strategy. So talk to me a little bit about how that transition from predominantly D to C to in-store kind of impacts how you guys go about your marketing goals and your marketing strategy. Yeah, it's definitely the same philosophy. So we're still a relatively young brand. We still don't have the kinds of budgets to spend on huge branded campaigns that have questionable or hard to measure ROI. (laughs) And so in the early days, we were very direct response focused. And so channels that other brands might view as brand marketing, we measured strictly on direct response. And so we we invested very heavily in things like podcasts, um, even linear TV, but measured that in terms of, you know, it's CAC, views, conversions, things like that. And we're taking the same mindset to now additional channels, right? So there's a bunch of levers at our disposal now that we're in retail that weren't available previously. And so that's everything from a floor talker in a Kroger store in the protein bar aisle that says, go around the corner and discover high protein cereal with Magic Spoon, all the way to, you know, using Instacart and things like that. And then also leveraging our DTC expertise to pull these online levers to drive offline velocity. And so whereas previously we might tap an influencer on TikTok to purely talk about going online and getting our variety pack, now we might have a slightly more nuanced message where it's go online, here's a discount, or by the way, you can pick this up at your local Target. And maybe we alternate that with a message where that influencer is doing a shop along and actually bringing someone into store. And so it's it's similar tactics, similar mindset, but a slightly broader menu of tactics and also using them for offline as well as just online. I would imagine with a broader menu means a different sense of measurement, which has been every on every marketer's wish list last year is to get a better sense of measurement from all the different touch points that are happening um, simultaneously for marketers right now. So curious, um, how do you guys go about streamlining that measurement process so we can determine what success is with these, as you say, menu of, um, of touch points for, for shoppers? 
Yeah, it's it's the question. And I think it was, <laughs> look, it's hard when you're 100% D to C today to perfectly measure everything that matters. It's infinitely harder when you're an omnichannel brand. And so even just questions as simple as, you know, what is the halo effect of our paid social spend on our retail footprint? In theory, are easy to measure, but the results are quite hard to interpret. And especially when your retail footprint is growing so quickly and you're in lots of different geographies, it's it's not the easiest thing to measure. We're getting smarter and smarter on it. We, we actually just started using a very interesting incrementality platform called House that a bunch of brands have started using recently. And one of the things that we're focusing on with them is um, forget specific tactics for driving velocity in store. But if we just look at our D2C tactics to drive D2C sales, what is the halo of that on our in-store velocity? Because when we launched in retail, we instantly saw that in many of our retailers, we were the number one selling cereal. So we launched in Target, and our fruit, fruity cereal was instantly beating Fruit Loops in terms of velocity and Target, which is wild. And it's not just because we've got nicer packaging or we've got better shelf placement. It's because we spent three years building our brand online and we're putting real money into our DTC marketing. And that's created this halo, obviously, which then people see us on a shelf and they remember, oh, I heard about that on a podcast and never bought it. I'll try it now. And so trying to understand, like, what is that halo effect of the online activity we're doing to offline is definitely very top of mind for us right now and something we're doing lots of measurement around. We don't have great answers yet. We have directional answers that give us confidence to continue investing in the tactics we've been investing in, but nothing that is as conclusive as I might like it to be or any marketer would like it to be. Yeah, the day that somebody comes up with a solution to fill that, they'll be a very rich person. <laughs> yeah, and there, you know, there, there are people that say they have the solutions and there, there are companies that will you know, run, run studies and present you with a finding that says, great news for every dollar you've been spending on paid social the past month, you know, you're getting 13 cents additional incremental return in your Kroger's in this region. But it's hard to take that very seriously at first without running similar studies over longer periods of time and and just, um, you know, being patient. Yeah, a lot of moving parts, a lot of moving parts, a lot of moving parts moving simultaneously. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I want to do a quick pivot. Um, I think one of the things that's also important to note uh, as a millennial millennial, excuse me, D2C, um, darling brand, is the big backing that came during that time period from venture capitalist VCs and whatnot. Um, you guys scooped up more than $100 million in funding, which is a, a big deal. But over the last couple of months, if not year, VCs are reportedly less willing to shell out dollars. So curious, kind of, does that impact you guys, especially as it relates to, you know, how you spend your ad dollars and set up your marketing budgets? We're lucky that we raised when we did, candidly. You know, I think the landscape has changed so much, as you say, over the past year, year and a half. Uh, valuations have changed, multiples have changed, expectations have changed. Um, and so we were able to, you know, find investors that really believed in what we were doing at a time where their landscape, the fundraising landscape was a little bit easier than it is now. And so, you know, lots of companies are really struggling to raise money right now, even for good businesses. And part of that is, is narrative and maybe not even that real, but part of it, you know, is very legitimate changes in expectations from investors, the public markets, acquirers. For us, we, we've always been very conscious from the beginning not to fall into the trap of thinking we're somehow a tech company when we're actually a food company, not to fall into the trap of paying far too much to acquire a customer on the blind belief that the LTV will pay back over some three-year time horizon where we've had to make tons of assumptions to make it make sense. 
we've tried to build uh, you know a real business from day one and acquire customers efficiently and not make any crazy assumptions to justify it. So we haven't had to change our philosophy, our tactics too, too much, as much as many other D2C brands have. And again, we didn't, we never, and we still don't view our business as a D2C business at its core. We don't mm-hmm. view that as our innovation. We view our innovation as reimagining cereal. And we happened to go to market initially D2C, but that was never going to be the future of our business. And so there's, there's a huge, you know, ocean for us to capture out there of, of retail shelves that we're just barely scratching the surface of. Mm, interesting, interesting. I will ask one more online retailer question, um, Ronton retailer forward question, is this idea that Google search and meta have been really big components of marketing strategy and ad spend, especially when you talk about getting down to the nitty gritty and being able to justify costs, customer acquisition and things like that, because you have some more insight. Um, but now there are obviously privacy restrictions, like we talked about at the beginning of this conversation, is Google's finally crumbling cookie um, and whatnot. So I'm I'm curious is how are you guys adapting to that environment with those privacy changes? Yeah, it's definitely been tough. And we we were lucky, you know, a, a couple of years ago when a lot of brands saw rising CAC on paid social as a result of some of the, as a result of some of the initial changes. We've never been that reliant on paid social. It's definitely a meaningful channel for us, as it is for every DTC brand. But we were pretty diversified from the very beginning. You know, we brought on influencers as investors in our business. And that was actually our largest acquisition channel in the early days was influencers, not paid social, not paid search. So we haven't been hit as hard as some other DTC brands have. But it's it's definitely hard. And we've definitely had to react to some of the acquisition headwinds by focusing much more on retention and mm-hmm. keeping our customers loyal. And we do that through new flavors, which we release every four to eight weeks, through having a robust subscription program that over time, especially in the face of some of these privacy changes, our subscription program has become a, a higher and higher percentage of our revenue as repeat revenue is more important to us. And we're recently launching new products as well to keep people coming back. So as of a few months ago, we're not just a cereal company. We now have a sort of Rice Krispie Treat type product, high protein, low sugar version of Rice Krispie Treat. That's doing very well. And so through new flavors, new products, and just a generalized increased focus on retention, that's probably the biggest way that we sort of indirectly combated some of these headwinds. Yeah, saw the writing on the wall from an early start. Exactly, exactly. I want to pivot back to the in-store strategy. Obviously, you know, the the elephant in the room is grocery store prices, inflation. You know, my mom's favorite, um, and I don't know how many people do this, but my mom's favorite way to describe Whole Foods is whole check because you spend your whole check the second that you walk in there. That's me at Costco and Target. But for for the grocery prices that are skyrocketing, inflation, shrinkflation, and every other flation, curious kind of how does that change your marketing messages when you talk to your shoppers um, and, and, you know, getting their attention and whatnot? It actually makes it a bit easier for our brands. So we launched four years ago with $10 boxes of cereal. And the the number one complaint that, that we get is, why would I spend $10 on cereal? And when we explain to people, well... It's not really cereal. In fact, there are literally no cereal grains in it. It's mm-hmm. like literally not cereal. It is a protein bar or protein shake in the shape of cereal. And when you think about it on a per-serving basis, it's actually cheaper than a protein bar. People get it and they understand. Now, though, other cereals have increased in price so much that are $9.99 or $8.99 on shelf 
actually doesn't look as crazy as it did four years ago, even compared to the sugary, you know, old school cereals. So some of the larger food companies increasing their prices because of inflation or ingredients cost increases, it's actually helped our customer perception a little bit. And it's made that education a little bit easier and the gap between us and the unhealthy cereals smaller. Mm. People take their gains very seriously, it seems. Yeah, well, their their gains, their whatever the improvement might be. I mean, when we when we started the business, it was very important for us not just to be a cereal company for workout people who want to get gains, right? It is not only just a high-protein cereal. It is, you know, low sugar, it's gluten-free, it's grain-free, it's soy-free, it's whatever you care about, whether you're mm-hmm. a workout fanatic, whether you're an elderly person whose doctor told them to get more protein, but you don't have time or ability to make eggs in the morning, whether you're a parent who wants to give their kids cereal or something healthy, but the kids only want Lucky Charms and you're kind of torn, what do you do? Well, they might think this actually is Lucky Charms, even though it's not. Really want to be the healthy cereal for, for anyone, regardless of what they care about. Yeah, or you're an adult looking for your afternoon snack. There you go. Exactly. That's me. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. Then we'll be right back. I want to dive deeper into the idea of the social media strategy that you guys have. You guys got some beautiful packaging that's really eye-catching. I've actually, ahead of this conversation, one of the things that I noticed that there were several news reports being like, you know, I actually stopped scrolling because I saw their packaging and that stopped me in my tracks and it made me want to purchase. You guys acquired 400,000 Instagram followers, um, you know, and, and engagement and things like this. So I want to talk about organic growth here, something that's harder and harder to come by in this pay for play space. Um, so talk to me, how do you guys, how do you guys manage to grow your, your presence on online? It's a great question. And organic definitely like doesn't get as much attention as it deserves, but I think increasingly as paid becomes harder and harder, it, it will. So we, we try to post content that is either educational or fun or entertaining. Sometimes our content ends up just being a picture of a pretty box. And to your point, like that, you know, that might stop someone scrolling, but that's not really our goal with organic social. And I think if our organic social was entirely pictures of pretty boxes, then it wouldn't be the best version of itself. So we're, we we do take advantage of the fact that our packaging looks beautiful, but more so than that, we, we try to either educate someone or make them laugh or post something interesting. I think on our packaging, it's interesting because people often say to us, well, your packaging's like so beautiful, so amazing. Stop me scrolling or how did you come up with it? And we can't really take any of the credit because there is a huge history of old school cereal companies really being amazing at marketing and creating iconic characters that everybody still knows about and that you remember from watching cartoons and having these bowls of delicious sugary cereal. And what we've done is really just tried to upgrade that a little bit for the modern consumer. And so we've really leaned in to the classic cereal companies that came before us, taken the characters and the sort of the road they paved, and just tried to slightly make the characters a little bit more grown up, a little bit more psychedelic even for today's modern consumer and for a a grown up that wants to feel a little bit like a kid again. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And then outside of um, Instagram, I'd be curious you know, obviously social media is a lot different from when you guys launched back in 2019. There's more channels. And even within their channels, there's more formats like stories and reels and posts, there's threads. So how does your team keep up with creating content in an extremely fragmented social media landscape? 
I think the key is not worrying too much about keeping up with everything. Because as a small team, you you can't do it all and you can't be good at all of it. And so for the first few years of our business, we we only really focused on Instagram. Um, mm. I mean, that was a time when feed posts and stories were getting a little bit more engagement than they were now, but that that was the focus. And we didn't really think much about TikTok. It, it either you know wasn't around or didn't have much traction at the time. We we stayed away from from Twitter, from LinkedIn. We didn't see much upside there. And we thought like cracking the code maybe just like just wasn't worth the squeeze. And so we we really focused on Instagram. And I think that's one of the reasons why we were able to figure out what worked and what resonated there. And ultimately, as you said earlier, gather 400,000 or so followers pretty quickly, which is more than any other cereal brand by far, whether you're looking at modern healthy ones that are competitors or Cinnamon Toast Crunch or Lucky Charms, whatever it might be. They've all get tens of thousands, not even hundreds of thousands. But it's because we focused on that one thing. And so now we're we're layering on TikTok and we're trying to get mm-hmm. good at that and get smart at that as well. But we're not trying to do it all at once because I think with a small team that that's just too hard and you you end up not really winning anywhere. And I'd much rather have, you know, the highest following and the highest engagement and really be winning yeah. in our space on one social channel than be mediocre on all of them. Yeah. I'm also going back to the idea of measurement. I'd be curious kind of like, how do you guys determine what makes success, uh, what makes a successful post now? Is it engagement? Is it clicks? Is it comments? Um, I feel like that's different for for everyone. It's a great question. And I don't think we've actually perfectly nailed the answer to that <laughs> yet. I, I think it's I think it's a combination of all those things subject to some brand guardrails. Mm-hmm. So we're a little bit looser with a paid ad than an organic, you know, feed post in terms of what we feel is on brand or not. With the organic posts on Instagram, for example, we, we know that that our Instagram feed and most Instagram feeds is to some degree like a curation of the brand look and feel. Maybe less yeah. so less so today than a few years ago. Like a few years ago, everybody's feed was just beautiful images and that that was it. And now there's more maybe UGC or some other sort of more interesting things. Um but everything you just described is is good in it for different reasons, right? So a post that provokes debates or comments is is very, very good. And but it's not particularly useful if like all of our posts are just controversial posts that provoke debate and comments. So it's it's a balance of all those things, right? So it's having some posts that are delivering lots of comments and excitement and people interacting with maybe our community team, with each other, whatever it might be with some other posts that are more educational. If somebody stumbled across us on an ad, they followed us, mm-hmm. but they don't really know who we are, what we do, weaving in some that actually explain what our product is beyond just an image of the packaging or you know the cereal itself. And then some, of course, that are designed to drive revenue and sales. So if we have a product launch either coming up, we might be teasing it or, or actually announcing the launch as well. Yeah. As you guys think about the different platforms that you're active on, do does each platform kind of play a different role? I know for some, Twitter is kind of where you engage conversations, ask questions, or threads, same thing. Um, whereas uh, Instagram is more educational or whatnot. So how do you guys kind of divvy, divvy those up? Yeah, I think you honestly nailed it there. I think for us, threads, Twitter, there, there are some brands that have hilarious Twitter accounts. And that yeah. is a, <laughs> a brand building account. That is what gets them to go viral, we're we're not there yet. I would love to say that's what it is for us, and we we definitely you know post some some funny and some cheeky lines that get some attention, but that's not 
the real focus there. And that's not where we spend the most of our time. For us, Twitter threads, it's much more about it's like one-to-one engagements. And so mm. somebody might have a question on shipping, a customer experience style question. And that's sort of mostly what we're using those platforms for. I think for for TikTok, it's it's less brand focused. It's less about our company and it's much more about trying to entertain and trying mm. to get engagement. And so there's less pictures of our product and our packaging and more like funny things about our office or our team or just breakfast in general um, and just getting more engagement sort of like zoomed out rather than all yeah. about our product and our brand. Uh, Instagram is much more focused on on products, on packaging, on on the reasons to buy while sort of weaving in some entertainment, some education as well. It almost seems like with some TikTok brands that I've seen some this kind of behind the scenes, like brand, like look, brands, they're just like us. <laughs> Everyday office situations and whatnot. Yeah, it's it, it's interesting. I think there's a lot of brands do that. I think some of that's a little bit overdone, obviously. And and I think a lot of brands are still figuring out what what the purpose there is, right? Like I talk mm. to a lot of founders who either haven't cracked TikTok. And, and really want to because they believe there's something amazing at the end there once they crack TikTok. But I've also spoken to some brands that that have cracked it in the sense that they're getting lots of viral posts, they're getting tons of views, but it's not really flowing through into revenue, whether that's online mm. or offline. And so there, it's, it's perhaps the wrong kinds of views, the wrong the wrong kinds of engagement. And so we're, we're, we're somewhere in between where we definitely post a lot of content that gets attention, where we're able to, you know, correlate sales sometimes a little bit with what's happening there, but not not perfectly. And so we're still very much learning about that platform. That's a really interesting point. I feel like TikTok has kind of been in limbo for a little while with that. Like, is it a direct response channel or is it more of like, you know, just flat out um, entertainment where people get to know your brand? Um, it seems like it might be different for everybody in that sense, but there is kind of this limbo area that it kind of finds itself in right now. Yeah, 100%. And obviously, TikTok shop is, is changing things as well. And so mm-hmm. I talk to a lot of brands that are selling a huge amount of product on TikTok shop. So that I think that's going to be huge for, for lots of companies. Um, but it's definitely exciting. And, and it's fun to experiment on, right? Like unlike Instagram, which maybe traditionally is a bit more polished with TikTok, yeah. users don't expect polished content. And so it's totally fair game to be pumping out multiple pieces of content a day. Some of them totally flop. Some of them go viral, maybe. Uh, and that kind of experimentation and learning is really fun for you know for the team as well. You actually bring up a, another really really good point about how much how much content goes into keeping up with a TikTok account. Um, I think I talked to one person that said that they make up like forty posts a day, which I don't know how anybody has the time to do that. Um, that's a lot of posts. But curious, kind of how for the any content gaps, um, how do you guys fill those in? Is it AI? Is it influencers? UCG, UGC. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it it is um, a, a lot of UGC, which you know is a fine line between UGC and influencer content. Yeah, we we do a fair amount of that. Um, we do a lot of seeding to smaller influencers, and part of that is, is an awareness play for them to actually post and you know just top of funnel awareness. Part of it is purely as a content creation engine, and some of that seeding for UGC is done to then take the content and chop it up into paid ads. And some of it is maybe if we see that their content is a little bit prettier, more polished, that actually might be for the purpose of using on organic, explicitly for that purpose. So there are some smaller influencers that we will seed specifically to get nice kind of polished UGC content to post on organic. 
There's others where it's a little bit more traditional UGC, like not polished at all, but looks very, very real life, that we're seeding them to get that content to use it in a UGC style ad. So we're using all of these um, different kinds of influencers for different purposes, but it's all helpful in filling content gaps across the social platforms, organic and paid. Yeah. I'd love to kind of walk through the evolution of you guys' influencer strategy. Um, you know, influencers was a big bet that you guys took from the very beginning. What, is, what does that kind of look like now and how has it changed? Yeah. In the early days, pre-launch actually, we raised our first half a million dollars from influencers. So before we launched, we raised a million dollars. Half of that was from a fund based in New York called Collaborative Fund. Half of it was from a long list of health and wellness influencers, not huge ones. They typically had maybe 50,000 to 500,000 followers. And in many cases, we were the first time they'd ever made an angel investment. And it might have been, you know, five, ten, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000. And they believed in the product. They believed in the vision. And they wanted to get involved in a business in the early stages. It was exciting to them. And so they, they invested in the business and then they helped us launch and they promoted it during the launch weeks and months. And so that was really how we launched the business. It was using these influencers and then quickly layering on paid social and other channels as well. But these sort of micro to mid-level influencers as investors in our business was sort of step one. Then we layered on an affiliate program where we were paying them as well as other influencers that were not investors in our business percentage of the sales that they generate through whatever channel they want to promote on, whether that's an email list they're blasting or organic social. And for a while, in fact, for too long, I insisted that we only do that, that we never pay an influencer up front. I couldn't wrap my head around the idea that an influencer would insist on a flat fee if they believed in their ability to move product. And so whenever an influencer would say to us, no, I refuse to promote you for 20% of the sales I generate, I charge $8,000 flat. My, you know, in my head, I was like, well, it's because you know that you're not going to sell any product. And so we're not going to pay that. Like we'll work with someone else instead. And, and I held too hard of a line there. And eventually the team convinced me just, to stop being so strict on that and to try <laughs> to try some influencers because there are many influencers that, this is what I later learned, that it's not that they don't think they can move products, just that they have so many brands coming to them, they, they have the luxury of getting the certainty. And so why would they promote a product for a percentage if they've got 10 other brands in their inbox all willing to pay a flat fee? And yeah. you know, there's a large number of large brands that aren't thinking about influencers or direct response channel, they're just willing to pay five grand, 10 grand, 20 grand, whatever the influencer is quoting them, just because they have a budget for influencer for their large company. And so we started dipping our toes into flat fee influencers, but only doing it when we spoke to other brands that worked with them and got mm -hmm. a reference that they actually sold product and generated a positive return. And so that was the next stage of our influencer journey, was identifying, in many cases, larger influencers that again had the luxury of saying no to purely affiliate-based commission and paying them a flat fee to post at the time it was usually Instagram stories and yeah. with you know with a swipe up link. And that that worked really well. And that was one of our largest acquisition channels for a while. We've now experimented with with a bunch of other structures. And so, you know, one thing we've done is work with influencers to create custom flavors and we create a serial character based on them and they develop the flavor with us. And then when we launch it, they also promote on their social channels. And so we've done a couple of really involved collaborations like that and excited to do some more of those, not only with influencers, but potentially celebrities at some point as well. I think it'd be really exciting, sort of a modern version of the, the Wheaties, you know, athletes in the box type thing. And then we also sort of broadened the way we think about influencers. And so 
to us, the channel is, is endorsement. It's anybody mm. who's talking about our product basically on our behalf. And so we include podcasts, for example, in that same channel. And for us, whether somebody is promoting us on their podcast, on their YouTube channel, on their Instagram story, it's all ultimately the same thing with slightly different nuances in how we measure it. Over time, YouTube and podcasts have become bigger than Instagram for us. Uh, and that's very much just in line with how those platforms have evolved and how engagement and views works on those platforms. Um, and so now it's a little bit of all of these things. It's affiliate, it's flat fee, it's exploring collaborations and exclusive flavors where we're doing it all at this point. I think one one thing that I'm learning throughout the, land, the, the span of this conversation is that there are a lot of levers moving simultaneously as businesses grow, um, you know, including yours. But I want to ask, as as a kind of my 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 big final question, my big finale, if you will, is what would you say is the biggest challenge facing companies that sell online right now? A big philosophical one for you, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to think of the single biggest. I think, okay, maybe a slightly convoluted way of answering your question. I think, I think there's no single biggest challenge. I think there's lots and lots of little challenges. And perhaps the single biggest challenge is trying to prioritize amongst them and figure out which of those might actually move the needle. So, you know, for us, all of our acquisition channels are harder today than they were two years ago for different reasons. So maybe privacy issues are, are one of the reasons why maybe paid social is harder than it used to be. Different types of creative work there. Podcast is, is harder than it used to be for us because... There's a finite number of podcasts that actually work from a direct response perspective. And we've, to some degree, saturated many of the audiences of many of those podcasts. And so our, you know, our hit rate for new tests is lower than it used to be. There's different challenges for different channels. And trying to think through which of those, cha- which of those challenges are worth prioritizing today, mm-hmm. I think is the hardest thing. Because you have to think through how easy is it to solve and what is the upside of solving it. And in many cases, the upside of solving it is very, very hard to know especially in D2C when many of these channels are still kind of the wild, wild west. Like brands are still learning so much, not only about maybe TikTok, which everybody realizes is new, but even on all these other channels that have been around for a very long time, even direct mail, which we started doing recently, we'll call up 10 brands asking what works on direct mail and get seven different answers from 10 brands. And so there's there's constant new things to try to solve and prioritization is probably the biggest challenge. That's interesting that you mentioned direct mail. I've had a couple of conversations. It seems like direct mail is having a resurgence right now. Well, yeah. I mean, when when the modern tactics that everyone's been focused on stop working as well, they look out to see what else there is. And so, you know, as, as every brand is seeing their, or most brands are seeing their CAC rise, perhaps on paid social, and they're looking for where else to invest, there's other channels that were overlooked, whether it's Reddit or Twitter or some old school channels like direct mail or radio, or for us, we've been doing more linear TV, uh, not connected TV, actually, but just pure old school linear TV, which has been fun. I have had a theory for so long, and not until now have I been vindicated, that traditional channels are going to start trending again, just as digital gets more convoluted. And everybody's like, no, 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 but digital's the future. And I'm like, no, I think we're going to start seeing some more traditional ones take precedence um, just for the digital fatigue and the, and the prices and whatnot. Yeah, 100%. And I think, all, you know, all these things are pendulum swings, right? So it definitely mm-hmm. will will swing that way for a while. And if when it if and when it swings too far and some digital channels get underpriced again, people will jump right back so to those right channels. Back. 
Exactly. Exactly. Okay. I have asked you a lot of questions and I so appreciate you chatting through all of them. It's been a really interesting conversation and I hope that our listeners enjoyed it. Listen, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of the Digiday podcast. Thank you to everyone for listening. And please don't forget to share this episode with someone who you think would enjoy it. You can even rate us and leave us a comment on Apple Podcasts. We'll be back next week with another episode of the Digiday Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. 